Hey, Jeremy, it's good to have you back on again. And we are back for part two of our masterclass, mate. So thank you again for joining me. Always a pleasure, Arjun. Always a pleasure, mate. Mate, I think uh, what's really the core focus of today is really first-time investor. And I think this is the majority of the audience, right, in terms of not us, but just investors in Australia. The majority are going to be those people who are really giving it their first go or trying to or wanting to or desire to give it their first go. And so when it comes to all those investors out there, I think everyone unintentionally confuses them with the whole, hey, go build a team around you. And then one swim lane's an accountant, another's a mortgage broker, another's a buyer's agent, another's a course provider. And they're just constantly swamped with confusion. And so this part two of our masterclass in the three parts is all about going first-time investors. In the first episode, we talked about a few swim lanes. And those swim lanes were all about, A, when we're talking accounting, individual names, if we are doing individual names, why? And if we are doing individual names, there's a partner in the relationship, what considerations might we have, a portioning, and these sorts of things. The second swim lane we're going through is if you're going entities. There's obviously trust, no trust, companies, uh, taxation considerations, your income, your risk management. And then we touched on three, your goals. Because, hey, if you want to get done, this is more. Three properties, hold them, bit of super, bit of shares, and you're good. And you're, you're feeling comfortable, long-term player. Then are we really going to be needing all the different stuff? And then we talk about part four, which is how to actually get the best strategic relationship. So we're going to go into these swim lanes today, mate. I guess let's start off with number one. talking individual names, we've got investors. Why might individual names be a great time or a great type of asset set up for a first-time investor? And maybe why might not it be? Yeah, so there's a lot of noise out there at the moment from lots of professionals regarding you know, how clients should be buying properties, whether it's in structure, whether it's individual names, talking about asset protection. There's a plethora of resources and it becomes quite confusing and very hard to navigate. But, you know, I've got a general rule of thumb and it's just my own personal opinion. But, you know, your first one, two and even three properties should be purchased in individual names. And the reason for that, Arjun, very openly is cost and simplicity. We do want to keep things quite simple very early on in our investment journey. We want to keep the cost as low as we possibly can. You know, there's a very small portion of people and investors who get to three or more properties. You know, so the way I like to look at things from a client perspective is I say, guys, look, there's a journey ahead of us. A portfolio is not built overnight and it's not built within 12 months. And there's many clients that I have that have been able to build, you know, 10 plus properties in their portfolio. But in most cases, it's been over a longer period of time. There are many people who've been able to build up large portfolios quite quickly, given, you know, different market conditions and different lending environments. Many people out there and professionals will say, well, it's very hard to do that now, but definitely seen people being able to achieve it. It just is becoming a little bit more challenging, but nevertheless, everything's always doable and achievable. Yeah. You've just got to find the right solution for it. But I like to start with individual names for anybody's investment journey. And the reason for that is cost, simplicity, and then we need to look at the tax consideration as well. Ideally, if there's any negative gear in there, we're able to get a tax benefit straight away. Arjun, which means- And that, that is super cost... common in this time, right, Jeremy? Like six, seven percent. You'd be even lying to someone if you told them you got positive cash flow. You could blatantly say that almost because yeah. these days, your typical 20% deposits, you've got to be over seven and a half percent yields. Yeah, to be positive time, cash flow. Yeah, and by the time you start to add in, you know, other costs such as council rates, property agent fees, yes. insurance, water rates, view. 
these are the things that people we often forget about and they are a crucial part of a property and ownership of a property. But you're right, you know, even with a 20% deposit, you'll find in most circumstances that the properties will be negatively geared. And to be very open, Arjun, doing this now over 15 years and seeing people's portfolios from many years ago, the environment we're in now is actually quite normal from a historical Mm. standpoint point of view. So, you know, it really needs properties to be at 70% leverage or lower for sometimes to often find a, a passive income that the property will generate. Or you've got the power of compounding return through increase of rents and potentially not a reduction of costs, but a slower rate of movement of costs. So these are the little reasons why we like to go with individual names first, able to obtain a little bit of tax benefit. We just need to consider, Arjun, very importantly, how we structure the individual names. Now, ideally, I'm not a fan of buying properties 50-50 outside our own home. And the reason for that is that nasty little thing called land tax. So we really need to understand how land tax gets calculated when you're buying either individually or in a partnership being in joint names. So that's very important, but it's also assessing the individual's personal tax and financial circumstances. You know, quite often it's very easy to buy a property 50-50 between partners, husband and wife, or whatever it may be in the family unit that someone's in. But we often have to look at the different and unique relationships that they've got with their own financial affairs. You might have, you know, one partner earning quite a bit of money and another partner, for instance, might be a stay-at-home father or mother. Now, if the property is negatively geared, one needs to consider that if the negative gearing is in the lower income earner's name, we might not be able to obtain a high percentage of tax back compared to the person who's paying a high percentage of tax in the dollar on their income. So it's really assessing the individual circumstances of that particular person and then really directing them with whose name that property should go in. And vice versa, there's many times where a client's bought an absolute cracker property, Arjun, where it has the ability to put a grad flat on it straight away because it's part of their business plan, which we'll get to that. And that's where we might forego a little bit of the negative gearing today for the long-term tax benefit that we'll obtain, which is putting potentially a higher positively geared investment into a lower income earner's name and therefore paying tax as a percentage lower compared to a higher income earner. So lots of things to consider when you are selecting the structure of the property. And people think structures about trust or companies or unit trusts or super funds. The structure of a property is individual names as well. It's really the owner of that property and how we're obtaining the benefit moving forward from a tax consideration. So these are the little things that I like to work with clients. We really try to assess the numbers, identify the business plan of the particular property, and then therefore we're able to really create the ownership structure in lieu of and in guidance of trying to obtain the most amount of benefit that we can from a land tax, tax and overall general growth perspective. Mm. And I think like listening to all of that, it's like there's income factor for the persons or people if they're in a couple. So that is one core factor. But the second is also the different states when you're going to like New South Wales, I guess you're treated as one person, right? When you go into that joint relationship. But then if I'm not mistaken, Queensland, you're treated as still individual shares of your joint purchase. So that really gives some good light. So when we're looking at the names, ideally, can you create up multiple individual purchases and have multiple states consider? That's kind of one thing. The second thing I'm hearing is that, hey, we don't need to have this site of a forecast of a property portfolio where you're like 10 to 15, 20 properties from day one. You might start with that because you might get three properties in. You hate anything to do with a roof, kitchen or a bathroom. And you're like, you know what? There are other asset classes that exist and this ain't for me. And that's cool, right? And so 
Lastly, other thing you've mentioned is all about factoring in things that aren't just for holding or entity from a perspective of taxes, but taxes individually. So this is where your incomes play a key part. And if you're negative gearing right now and all of a sudden you have a 50-50 and one person stay at home and one person's on 180K or something, then that's a big chunk of money that you might not be deducting appropriately because of that ownership split. So that's such a good point. Now, Jeremy, what I wanted to also point out, you, you ticked a very important thought that came to my mind. When you have an individual purchase and all these stories of investors, 5, 10, 15, 20 properties, whatever it may be. I asked people the outcome that they want in certain planning discussions, and no one ever told me the outcome was 10 properties. No one ever told me the outcome was five properties, but they're attracted by the five, the 10, the 15, the 20. And the questions that I'm sure you run into all the time is, oh, but the serviceability, how am I ever going to build a portfolio? But then I just pause and I'm just like, hey, hold on a minute. What's the outcome you're after? Well, I'm on 100 and I save about 30K of my 100. I maybe have a mortgage of about 10, 20K of my 100 as well, whatever it may be. And so really, I probably want my leftover lifestyle, which is me living on 50K, to be able to live the same lifestyle, not have a mortgage on my home, and use investing to do that. And then we throw it into some calculators like, so you need two investment properties in your super or your financial planner comes in, talks about super and you've got two investment properties or three. Oh, wow, hold on a minute. I didn't really need, you know, three properties, 10 properties, 15 properties. You needed two or three held over the long term. And that's when going into all these borrowing capacity, strategy, trust structures, this, that, then you realize property is not for you and fees, costs, management, headaches, taxes and land tax of holding. And all of a sudden you might never pay land tax your whole life with two properties in two different states and, and an individual name. So I think this is such a crucial part for investors to realize when you start your journey, don't think of the end of a property based outcome. Quantity, values, don't care about that. Think about it from a perspective of what your end income is needed to be. And if that's the scenario you want and that's all you want, then you may realize you need far less properties held over long times than you actually do. And all those serviceability constraints that are thrown on you aren't really constraints. They get you to goals anyway. That's and it. so that's such an important part and a segue to part two of the conversation, my friend, which is a little bit of a switch in the swim lane, but we're going to go to goals because I think that just makes more sense. When an investor is in their first time, how do they sort of, bring up their investing goals and think of investing almost like a business and start to use this business plan to get to some of their goals and really think of it more holistically because you've talked about the importance of running investing like a business plan. Could you elaborate more on what that means? Yeah, so uh, look, we hear about goals and objectives and it, it's always a, um, a buzzword when anyone talks about you know financial freedom and it is important, no doubt about it, but you can have all the goals and objectives you want in the world, but if there's no action plan around it, they're just goals and objectives on a piece of paper. It's the actions that get you to the end result. But for me, I like to really understand what is that passive income that a person requires. And with that, then we can almost start to create the right level of structure to ensure that they're efficiently earning that money without paying lots of tax. And we manufacture that calculation backwards many times. You know, people want about $100,000 worth of passive income. We gross that up to take into account some expenses. And roughly one requires about a two and a half to say $2.7 million unencumbered investment portfolio made up of whatever investments people decide to choose to get to that income goal. Obviously, these are cash flow yielding investments, not necessarily just capital growth with no income attached to it. And then with that, then we can start to put the puzzle together and the pieces of the puzzle together so that people are efficiently working towards where they want to be. Now that moves into business planning. 
That's a business plan. What we've done just then is created a plan of what we need to do to get to where we want to be. And all successful businesses, and that's a top level, you know, multinational billion dollar entity all the way down to your mum and dad business. Without a business plan, you're really flying solo with your eyes blind or your eyes closed, I should say. So that's so important. I really try to encourage people that when they are buying property, it's not just to look at it as an investment where they sit on a chair, relax, and things just tick over in the background. It will happen to some extent, but the more active that you are with inside your portfolio, the more active you are as an investor, like treating your property like a business, the better results you'll have. And I often question clients and say, okay, you've bought this property. What are the various exit strategies that you've got? Can you subdivide? Can you renovate? Can you add an additional dwelling such as a granny flat? Can you build a duplex? Can you maybe extend the house? These little things will allow people to be able to A, manufacture growth throughout the process or B, manufacture income, which helps them towards their goals. So that's important, creating a business plan for the property. Also budgeting and preparation, Arjun. So many people, you know, they'll buy a property, they'll do it, they get so excited by the event and the transaction. And then when it comes down to the overall numbers and the maintenance, of the property moving forward and I'm not just talking about painting I'm talking about maintenance from a numbers perspective which is paying the interest and the bills and collecting the rental income they didn't have the guidance to see well my property is actually not producing what I thought it would you know I didn't take into account the property agent fees the insurance the council rates the water rates the provision of repairs the interest all of a sudden you know they're left out of pocket anywhere between one to two thousand dollars a month especially in an environment that we're in now. And because the budgets and preparation wasn't done prior to it, they kind of leave themselves without the knowledge and that kind of scares a lot of people. So I'm a big fan of knowing or trying to get as close as you can and identifying the numbers of a property and how it will proceed and how it will go with inside your portfolio over a projected period of time. And that gives you confidence and clarification to make decisions. So often I ask people all the time, Arjun, how's your numbers and how's your properties performing? And I can almost say 90% of people don't know. Mm. They know the rent that it's getting, they know the interest that they're paying, but they don't have a holistic view of all the other costs. So I encourage them with Excels that we've created to do their monthly numbers that accumulate you know, over the months and then total at the end of the year. And that gives them now perspective to say, hey, our property is doing X, it's providing us income, it's creating a loss. And that's going to give them the ability to then make the right decision or pivot in a different way for the next properties that they want to buy in the portfolio. So again, that's all budget, that's preparation, that's working towards your goals, that's business planning for the property. And I think if you're not doing those things, and you don't need to be an accountant, you don't have to have an economics or a commerce degree to do this. There's some really simple tools out there, it just requires the active involvement from you. But if you can do that, you can then really start to reshape or pivot or rebalance how your next purchases will be. So it ends up working towards a larger goal or objective that you have, which is your passive income requirement at the end of your journey. So that's massive. And I see so many people drop the ball on that. And it will impact your future buying perspectives, It will impact the next type of properties that you purchase, or the right type of properties to purchase. Um, from my example, I've, you know, rebalanced and, and pivoted quite a bit in my portfolio to move away from of the balance sheet. So I'm, I'm happy with the asset base that I've created. And now my pivot has been towards the P&L. I'm after now my income far exceeding my expenses to increase the passive income that I'm generating. So 
for me, it was the business plan, it was the budget, it was the preparation that I'd done early on to now pivot and rebalance and move away from having to worry about capital growth and more towards now the income that the portfolio provides me. So these are the things that you need to be definitely doing at all times with professionals or on your own to really gain the knowledge. And as we all know, Arjun, knowledge is power and, and helps create great results. Yeah, the core part I'm hearing here is the business plan has to be quite holistic and it's about having consistent flow of information and then making better decisions and making decisions with an end in mind, similar to what a business would do to start a business and then thinking long term too. But you'd be surprised at how many businesses don't do that, right? I guess the main thing I'm hearing though, Jeremy, and this is where uh, investors listen to this, really want to take a, a viewpoint that considers different types of business plans, right? Like for example, me and you are on trajectories that are going towards similar end goals, which is producing income, a profitable property portfolio, P&Ls, but we got there in completely different ways. You've been a little bit more hands-on, if I'm not mistaken, I have had more development experience in myself, have had more, you've looked at something, you've been able to turn nothing into something, right? Whereas I don't have the same eye. And I'm here to honestly say that my eye comes in a different lens. I look at a market and I can envision what would happen in this market extremely well and have done that for many people and myself. And so when someone looks at my business plan, it's important to note that, you know, you can have two different shops in the same industry and both can be profitable shops. And when you're looking at your business plan, none of my 17 properties can be developed. None of my 17 properties can throw a granny in there, a second level or anything. And so with my 17 properties, they're still going to get me to my goal. Some had renovation potential, don't get me wrong. Some were types of unit block assets. Some are commercial. Some are residential. Some are timed. The majority are timed extremely well that have outperformed. But the main thing is my business plan and Jeremy's business plan are two different business plans. But we still want to sit on the same beach and share a drink together later on in life because we're heading to the same outcome, right? So when you're out there listening to this, construct your business plan with your appetite. Construct your business plan with the review. And you know, those people that do get furthest in life are not those equipped with the most data. It's those who are equipped with the most data that make the best decisions. And so when you're using data, I trust you to really just go deeper into it. But I want you to make decisions that make sense. And this is where first-time investors often get it wrong. We'll take Jeremy's P&L usage and looking at the data monthly, having Excel sheets, you're going to have one personality that looks at the spreadsheets and goes, oh my God, I'm doomed because of this maintenance. I can't hold property. This property's cost me 10000 this year and I now don't want to invest further in property. And then you have person two, same data was given to them. Okay, it's 10000 You know what? Deducting aircon. It happens. It breaks. I'm going to do it, claim some of it, appreciate whatever it may be. And I understand it's going to improve my property or maybe have a new system that won't bother me for some time. Oh, look, the property grew 6%, 7%, 8%. And if I hold that for this many years, it's going to do things. So I encourage you all listening to this to have a business plan. Take a massive page out of Jeremy's book because this will help you. But your business plan is just the start. The decisions you make off it, the way you react to the data and have the team around you to react to the data, the way you educate yourself is the difference between a person who starts and a person who finishes right? And that's the core thing I just wanted to highlight. So such a good part on business plan, Jeremy. Anything to add there before we move on to yeah, uh, the entities? Definitely the one thing to add is information. The more information that you can gather, and you spoke about, you know, the property may be cash flow negative, for instance, but it's grown by 6% on the top line, including the leverage in place. All of a sudden, if your property is grown by $40,000 in that year or consecutively grown by $40,000 each year for two years, that's $80,000 worth of growth on $20,000 worth of cost with a bit of tax benefit being added back. Now, if someone told me that, Jeremy, you'll make 80, but it's going to cost you, say, $15,000 after we take into account the tax benefit, I'd do that any time of the week, the day, the month, <laughs> the year. So, you know, capturing that information 
on both sides is so important. And what scares people the most, Arjun, again, with many new clients that I manage and assist, is that it's the lack of knowledge and information. So the biggest thing that I really want to reiterate here today is, you know, if you can resource yourself up with a lot of, yes, professionals, but a lot of information on your internal portfolio generation or your internal investment generation, that's going to give you clarity and that's going to give you answers. And the more doors that you can open, the more opportunities that are available to you. But if you really are trying to fly through this blind without information, it's not going to lead to making the right decisions. And that's where I see a lot of people fail in investments is they're just uninformed. They haven't got you know, the right people around them to help them and guide them in the right direction. And therefore, they're flying solo. And uh, like many things in life, you know, the bigger the group around you, the more confidence you have. Well said, sir. Well said. And, and the data, the execution, the people around you, and where you're heading to. Summarized it. And that's uh, well said, Jeremy. Now, entities, swim lane number three. So for those first-time investors that perhaps go, ooh, I get it, Jeremy. Makes sense. First couple of my personal name. But we're going to be devil's advocate here and talk in what scenarios is someone going to start with an entity first? And this is first-time investor coming to you going, I need my Rolls Royce entity. I want the PTYLTD. I want the deeds, the trust stuff. I want to have the barbecue and the conversation and sound like the old multi multi millionaire family mafia <laughs> discretionary trust owner. Uh, I got the Italian dude setting it up for me as well. So, Jeremy, tell me what's, what's happening? Like, when does someone go, I need to set this up? And you go, you know what? Makes sense. Yeah. So, structure look, first and foremost, accountants and solicitors utilize structure from an asset protection point of view. So, depending on your risk appetite, depending on what you do as a profession, if you're a business owner, we will generally establish structure potentially early on for investments. And that's because we want to protect the asset from any pending issues moving forward in the future. Now, the banks, unfortunately, the piper always gets paid in that instance. So they'll always have security over the property first, regardless of what structure it's in. But nevertheless, asset protection is always key. But like anything in life, it's a balance of asset protection and cost. So we really want to understand the person's circumstances before we then start to look at structure. So that's number one. Number two, then we start to look at the tax benefits involved. Now, you know, generally a lot of people after they've bought their one, two and three investment properties, they've got a plan, they've got the taste of creating wealth, they're very motivated. And now we want to do that potentially in a little bit more of a tax incentivized environment. So trust, for instance, is a great way to be able to minimize tax in the future legally by being able to distribute the profits that the portfolio will generate from a revenue perspective and also being able to distribute the profits that the portfolio will generate from a capital perspective. So generally a lot of wealthy families, and that's how dynasties are created, is that you know they're potentially putting the resources together and then they're filtering that through from a family perspective because many hands make light work, as they say. So that's one instance where there's can, potentially can be quite a bit of tax incentive involved. And again, you're taking out the risk of whose name do you put it in, for instance. So you know, if you put it into the higher income earner's name and it turns positive quite quickly, then all of a sudden they pay tax at a high percentage. But if there are losses potentially in the first couple of years, we may be able to put that property into a trust, absorb those losses when the passive income starts to get generated, and then we're able then to distribute the profit to potentially, say, the partner on a lesser income. And that way we're getting some tax benefit without having to really look forward so much and try to predict the future with a level of accuracy. So trusts are a great way to minimize tax and to hold assets. A large portion of my portfolio now is in trusts and numerous trusts. And I've done that for asset protection 
but also for tax minimization. So I'm really starting to distribute the profit now to my wife, who's on a much lesser income than myself. So that's a major second reason as well. And there are some borrowing reasons now that are starting to come to light as more brokers are getting educated around it. There's some business perspective reasons. Generally, people that are buying commercial property will do that with inside a trust or a company, depending on their circumstances. And again, it's to isolate that particular property from, say, the balance of the portfolio. So you can see how it's standing alone on its own two feet potentially some borrowing benefits off the back of it, but also there's the tax benefits from being able to distribute potentially a higher portion of the revenue. So they're the reasons why we get into entities. It's just at what stage does it become feasible? And, you know, there is a cost of establishment margin to establish that particular entity, and there's a cost of running it, which is potentially a lot more in terms of them buying the property in your own name. So it needs to be right to obtain the level of benefit. The last thing we want is the tax benefit that we're receiving is equal to the cost, say, for instance, the solicitor or accountant is charging, and then all of a sudden you're just helping the professional rather than helping yourself. So mm-hmm. we need to go through that feasibility process. It needs to be in line with what people are willing to create. You know, if your goal is just to have a million dollars worth of investments and achieve a fifty or a $60,000 passive income, one might argue that a trust may not be feasible for your portfolio. But if your goal is to generate potentially two hundred or $250,000 worth of passive income, then one would argue that a trust would form a major part of that because the last thing we want is to have $250,000 all going to one person and they're paying a huge amount of tax to the government well into their retirement years. So that's where we really try to work with people to understand what they're after, when to do it, and then obviously the correct execution throughout the process as the years go on. Yeah, that's really helped made a sense of this for me. So firstly, I'm starting from a, is my goal going to be at such a level for which I can envision something happening where I do need to think of that taxation scenario way in advance? The second thing it broke down to me was asset protection means more to me earlier on. And whilst I could have a couple of assets personally and be okay with that exposure, it just is very important to me, my line of work, my line of business, and I want to do that. So that's the second thing it sounds like as a first time investor's decision. And then the third and final thing to summarize, Jeremy, it sounds like when it comes to the rate in which this property may change its tax environment, whether it be negative to positive or positive from day one or soon to be paid down or then become positive and I'm a high income earner, then it may become advantageous to have structures that better manage it. So it's almost like you're bringing that future forward and you're making a conscious decision that, no, no, I'm on this path and that's going to happen and I need to take those decisions up front. But I can see now the real good logic around why not starting with them too because people don't often have that hindsight of everything there. I can tell you now as a 22-year-old investor when I got my first property, from 22 to 25, yes, The ambitions were high, the incomes were growing, and everything was there. But you couldn't tell me that I was going to have the properties we have today back then. And as confident as I was, as goal-driven as I was, even I didn't know that, right? And so I naturally did start a few in those individual names first because that helped me get that comfort of going, I've got a few. But then ambitions rose incomes rose, risk rose, channels of income changed. My wife as well was also heightening her income. So all these different things happened. Then I started getting more sophisticated down the track. So that is for the first time investors likely to be the majority out there. But for those that do have unique circumstances, like Jeremy's pointed out, it might be then that consideration to start it. And that's where all of that breakdown really helps from you made in terms of classifying that. Now, if we go over to our last swim lane, Jeremy, which is all about going, hey, I get goals, my business plan. I'm a first time investor and I understood here this podcast, the apportioning, my name, partner name, my name only, joint names, why, why not, land taxes, entities, 
risk protection. And I'm putting this all together. But look, my accountant's rubbish. My accountant's the best. How do I know? Who's a good one? Who's not? I want to have a good relationship with my accountant. Why do I have to keep asking them these questions? Why can't they just tell me? Aren't they meant to know everything? But then hold on a minute. There's different scenarios, different goals, people coming up with one goal one year, changing things the other year, and then people not knowing with no business plan of where to go. So how do you create and guide someone with a business plan when they ain't got no business plan for what they want to do? This is tough, man. I know you got it pretty tough on your side, but let's try and help people create some pretty good relationships with their accountant and create ones that are strategically sound and you actually have a team around you. What are some great tips to make that happen? And then realize if it truly is the accountant or actually, you know, it's just how you dance with them, right? Yeah, and I think that's the best statement you've made. It's how you dance with your professionals. Most people think an accountant is someone that you just chat with once a year, get the tax return done, and then I'll see you later, sayonara, and we'll, we'll catch up next tax year when the payment summary is done. But, you know, I like to work with my clients on a little bit more of an ongoing basis, journey-wise. And many advisors, and I'll use the word advisors because I believe that the industry is changing from being just a tax agent to do the return to an advisor who works very closely with the clients as they evolve. But for me, I encourage my clients to really touch base with me on large or prior to making large financial decisions. Now, majority of accountants aren't financial planners, so we can't tell you if your asset that you're purchasing is going to make you a million dollars or lose you a million dollars. We can't tell you if it's the right asset or the wrong asset. But what we can give you is numbers. We can give you tax perspectives. We can give you ownership structures. We can really start to understand what's happening and have in the back of our mind a vision of what your thing should look like as you start to progress and move forward with your journey. So I really do encourage anyone out there who has an accountant to really treat them like an advisor. Now, there may be some cost attached to their time. Sometimes it's not all included as part of a package they provide. But the goal is, and this is my spiel, is that if you're doing the right job as an advisor and accountant, the services you provide are free. I'll say that again. The services you provide are free. Because if we can get our advice correct based upon the journey the client's taking or going to take, then the savings that come from tax, the savings that come from land tax, the savings that come from general things in the future will far outweigh, Arjun, what our cost would be. And that's my proposal to everybody is that if your professionals are doing the right job, and again, like yourself in the buyer's agency space, I could almost guarantee you that you've made hundreds of millions of dollars worth of wealth for your clients for the cost that they've paid you. To me, that's a valuable service. That's hundreds of millions of dollars of wealth you've created for, say, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of cost. I'd take that scenario any day of the week. So you want to make sure that you're, you know, dancing with the right professional to the right tune and ensuring that you're really getting them involved at critical points of your journey. And ultimately, that's the large financial decisions that you're making so that you're aware of everything. And one of the biggest examples I can provide to people is, you know, for instance, as little as buying a car. Jeremy, I want to buy a vehicle and I'm going to get a loan for it. Not a problem. There's the tax implications on the loan. That's not an issue. But also, did you know that there's borrowing capacity implications as well? So that's where potentially getting in contact with your broker or with your accountant so they can give you a little bit of the industry experience. That may change the direction of you 
paying you know a lot of money for a car with a big loan or maybe downsizing to a smaller car where you can ultimately pay for it outright so it doesn't impact your borrowing cap so it doesn't necessarily always have to be about tax Arjun. it could be as little as the car scenario that i gave you but ultimately you need to keep your professionals in line with what's happening in your current position and where you're wanting to be so i always really try to ask my clients well guys this is where you are right now you know, what's the next 12 or 18 months look like? And it just gets the cogs moving and turning so that everyone's progressively walking in the same direction. And Jeremy, when it comes to that, then when you think of a partner, there's dancing together, dancing to the right tune. Well, what if they're just cross-legged? They can't dance properly. They suck. I know I've been a bit harsh here. How do you know when that's the case? And how do you know when to go, probably need to change? Because some people, the measure of success is that's been my accountant Mm. for 10 years. Or like there's trust, there's relationship, but sometimes the trust and relationship may not get you the results. So I'm just trying to understand when should someone ask themselves a question and go, oh, probably not working out. Yeah, I think it's solutions. As professionals, and this has been my mantra of being a good professional, it's always to try to find and provide ways for solutions. And I think... Once you reach that point where I'm not getting the level of solutions or I'm not getting any solutions to any of my problems, well, that's when there's two things that have happened. You could have a cross-legged professional or you may have outgrown your professional and their expertise. You know, I've been lucky enough and I'm you know, very humbled to say that there's been lots of clients that I've worked with over many years and I've grown them to a certain point where I just simply can't provide them the level of solutions anymore. And I do have to let them go to, you know, potentially bigger or better organizations out there that can really service that client. And I don't look at that as a terrible thing. I look at that as I've done my job to take this client from a mum and dad business to potentially over a billion dollar entity. And now they need the bigger guys out there with a much larger team and substantial amount of resources to be able to take them to new heights. So I think that's important. Mm. It's knowing when you've reached, I suppose, the peak with your professional and then you need someone to take you to that next level. And it may not be forever that you're with them. You may have to then have someone else to take you to a new level. So that for me is quite important. If you're not finding that you're getting the right level of solutions or any solutions at all, that's when you really need to start to look out in the open market for other professionals who may be more in tune with what you're doing and coming back to dancing that similar beat. Man, it reminds me of my soccer coach back when I was like six or seven. By the way, I'm a horrible soccer player for those all listening. I'm far better at some other sports. But I remember I was like year six or seven, and I think he took the most pride on getting me off the toe hacking. I just was like toe hacking like no tomorrow. And so the main thing, I think, like his pat on the back, hand around the shoulder, like move on, young Padawan, on to the next, was like, I just stopped this kid from like, you know, toe hacking for two years straight, three years straight, just toe hacking everything. And so I think after that was my moment of moving on from that coach. And then I went on to another one, but then I changed sports and the stereotype of cricket and getting taller and basketball and all these other stuff came in. But uh, I guess that really does help in terms of growth, in terms of support, but also, I guess, in terms of that solution. Because solution just doesn't come from growth. Solution also comes from their ability to identify your problems or their ability and capability to help your problems, right? Or sometimes you might even create too many problems of your own and you might be the culprit, right? So there's a few different ways where people can reflect on this. But today's chat's been really insightful, my friend. We've gone through you know, goals, business planning, trust in entities. We've really gone through different holding names on the personal apportioning, joint, single portions of percentages, and then even gone through how to pick the right professional. So part two or three of the masterclass next Next time, we're talking to you high net worth investors, experienced property owners. We're bringing out the guns of trust, discretionary, unit trust, family trust, however you want to call them. We're bringing out, you know, all the different things 
because now your needs and where you're at in your journey is different. And for those who are the first time investors, I still ask that you do catch up with us on this next third part because there might be visionary, there might be discussions around what the future looks like. And sometimes you don't know what the future is if you don't know what it looks like, right? And so from that perspective, when you do join us for part three, Jeremy, I think it'll be great for not only the experienced investors to see where we can start really going into more complex structures, entities and and thinking, but also the first time investors who really want to stay in, in the 50 to 100k passive income and that's their goal get there faster not get there later with more and that's fine but then they'll get to figure that out themselves or what some of the moves are that people like myself you make and and others make on this journey and so i'm really pumped for that mate so thank you so much in advance of today's session and can't wait for the next one part three of the master always a pleasure Arjun. thank you buddy